Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, we're excited about a new day uh, and a new set of studies for uh, for uh, this this day. And uh, appreciate so much all of our speakers for coming out uh, this hour. The David Sproul is the speaker for this session. If you don't know David, David uh, was born and raised in West Palm Beach, Florida. He now works there uh, with the West Palm Lakes or West Beach Lake Palm Beach Lakes Church of Christ. Um, he has also done uh, uh, local work in Tennessee uh, in the past. He's a graduate of Freed Hardeman. He and his wife Tracy have uh, two daughters, Katie and Kelly. And uh, you've probably read David's name if you don't know him, uh, just in writings he's done and places he's been to preach. And uh, what I always admire about listening to David is the practicality of what he delivers. It's extremely uh, on my level. And I know that takes a lot of work for someone with as much wisdom and, and education as he has to be able to say it where we can all understand it. And I appreciate that so much. And I'm looking forward to his lesson this morning. If you will, let's bow for prayer and then we'll turn things over to David. Father, we thank you so much for a good night's rest and for the beauty of your creation, for the very air that we breathe, for the right to call you our Father and to pray uh, to you and through your Son. We thank you for your servant David this morning. We pray that he will preach as he ought and that we will learn. We're thankful so much for this great book that we're studying, for all of uh, the things it teaches us about you and about us and about our relationship. And Father, we pray that we would use this material, we would use this education to grow deeper in our faith and our love for you that we would share that with others. Thank you again for saving us through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here. I appreciate uh, your uh, your attendance and your uh, interest in this study. I know... Uh, uh, when you got Eric Owens over in the auditorium, that's uh, that's a big draw, uh, and so I appreciate being in here for this session. Um, you know, when we turn to the Book of First Chronicles, chapter eleven, we learn about David becoming king, and. Uh, King Saul had died, and now David is uh, is anointed as king over all of Israel. Uh, and at that time, David goes down and conquers Jerusalem and uh, decides, we, we've got to bring the ark down here. Uh, we've got to get God's presence into this city. And, uh, and so we've got to get the ark of the covenant down here uh, into Jerusalem. And, and he said that uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, uh, that, that we have not inquired at the ark since, since the days of Saul. Uh, and so uh, they, they decide to bring the ark of the covenant down to Israel and you know the story uh, we learned from chapter 15 and verse 13 that they did not uh, they did not go to the Lord to understand the proper order uh, that was involved in uh, in transporting the ark and so you know the story about Uzzah uh, and you know when I was a kid I knew the story about Uzzah but I didn't know the context of, uh, of why they're transporting it where they're transporting it the need to get it to Jerusalem uh, the fact that David wants it there uh, in order to uh, to bring God's presence into the into this holy city that is going to be known as, uh, and so you know, as they're transporting it, instead of transporting it as they were instructed to on the on the shoulders of the priests, they put it on that new cart, and uh, Uzzah and Ahio are driving it, and the oxen stumble, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark, touches the ark, the Lord strikes him dead, and. Uh, 
at that moment, uh, David's anger uh, is aroused as much as God's anger is aroused towards Uzzah. And David says, no, we better not bring the ark into Jerusalem. Uh, and so they, they take a detour. Uh, and for about three months, the ark is, uh, is outside uh, of Jerusalem. And then uh, finally, uh, David builds a, a tabernacle uh, there in the city. Uh, they, and we get to chapter 15 and learn that uh, David had prepared a place for the ark. He had pitched a tent there. Uh, in Jerusalem, you get into uh, verse 15 of chapter 15 of First Chronicles, and they transport the ark down there. Chapter 16, uh, they finally get it there. They put it. Uh, they put the ark inside the tabernacle, and they offer those burnt offerings and peace offerings uh, there before the ark. Um, we don't know the background of the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 15. Uh, a lot, of, most of the psalms, we don't, you know, we don't have that contextual background, but. There seems to, it seems to be written at a time after the te- the uh, the ark had been brought to Jerusalem, after the ark had been put into the tabernacle, and so perhaps those things that we've discussed, uh, perhaps that's the background. Perhaps when David comes before God in Psalm 15 and is trying to figure out, God, I want to come before you properly. Uh, they had learned uh, in uh, through the events of, Ez- of Uzzah, uh, that you've got to make sure you come before the Lord the, with the proper order. And so perhaps that's in David's mind in Psalm 15 is, okay, Lord, first, how do we come before you in the proper order? And, and, and then, Lord, how do we just come into your presence and how do we acceptably and, and with your approval come and dwell in your presence here before uh, the ark and the tabernacle and ultimately uh, forever? And so if, if, if that's the background, uh, then, uh, then perhaps that gives us a little understanding as to David's mindset uh, as, as we get into this. But the main thing is that David wants to know, how, how, can we, how can we dwell in the presence of God? How can we be approved there? And so what I want us to do is, if you'll get your Bibles and turn to Psalm 15, we're just going to spend time in these five verses this morning. Uh, we're going to look at a two-part question uh, here in verse 1. Uh, we're going to look at what I think is a two-part overall answer uh, that, uh, that David gives in verse 2. Uh, and then we're going to kind of look at a specific answer. I, I see kind of an overall answer that's to the question in verse 1. Uh, and then some specific answers that are given in the verses that follow. And then we get to the end of verse 5. Uh, and we'll look at the blessing uh, that is uh, in store for those who follow, uh, who follow these, these guidelines from our God. So you go to verse 1. And uh, verse 1 kind of has this Hebrew parallelism involved here, I believe. And so there are two questions being asked here in verse 1. But really, I think there's one thought uh, involved in the two questions. Although the questions, uh, there, there are some different wording here. And so perhaps two different lines of thought, but they're both headed, uh, they're both headed in the same direction. Uh, so in verse 1, you've got the question. And the first part of the question is, he says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Uh, if, if you want to know how to be approved in the eyes of God, what's the first word in the verse? Uh, you better go to the Lord. Uh, if you want to know how to acceptably uh, approach our God, well, you better go to the Lord, not to man, uh, not to uh, get some understanding of, of, uh, of what man might think, but what does the Lord say? And so that's who he goes to. Lord, I, I, I want to be acceptable in your, in your eyes. Where, how do I do this? And so the question is, who may abide? In your tabernacle, the word abide means to live as an alien, uh, to dwell as a stranger uh, in a land where, where you do not belong. Uh, and so, and where, where you do not uh, have a, a permanent dwelling anyway. And so, at, 
it's an interesting question. He said he recognizes, Lord, I'm only here temporarily, but he uses the word tabernacle, uh, which is obviously the, the temporary tent, that the, the movable tent that the Jews used during their time in the wilderness and even here in Jerusalem uh, for a period of time. And so the first question that David is, is asking is, 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 Lord, who can find your approval? Who can be there and abide in your presence, even temporarily? Uh, this idea of abiding, even temporarily on this earth. Lord, how can I dwell in your presence with your approval? So then you get the second question. And the second question, again, is in, in the parallel aspect of this, is really saying the same thing the first question says, but you've got different words that are used here. First question is, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? And then the second question is, who may dwell in your holy hill? And the word, the word that's used here for dwell, the Hebrew word that's used here, means to settle down. It means to remain somewhere. It means to stay somewhere. And so it, it has, uh, the, the at least it can indicate, it may not necessarily here, but I, I think it does, it can indicate a more permanent dwelling than the idea of abide. So he used the word abide in the first part of the verse. Okay, who can, who can temporarily dwell in in your presence here but then he uses this word dwell and say, okay who may settle down who may stay here and and then he uses not the word tabernacle but who may dwell in your holy hill uh, and so perhaps pointing to the even more permanent uh, structure of the temple uh, that would be uh, that would be built there on Mount Zion so Again, I don't know that there's supposed to be a separation of thought uh, in those two questions. Likely they're, they're focused in on one concept, and that is, Lord, how might, how might I abide uh, in, with your approval? But I find it interesting he uses the word abide, a temporary term, and he uses the word dwell, a more permanent um, staying term. Uh, and so as I think about those two terms uh, that are being used in the word tabernacle and the word uh, for holy hill that's used there, I see at least some, some application for us to think about. Um, as, as Christians, uh, obviously we live into the New Testament age, but you've got, those, you've got the type and a type uh, contrast and, and comparisons that are used uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so perhaps we are to see, a, at least to make an application here, this idea that the, uh, the Old Testament tabernacle, as you know, was a type uh, for the church that we find in the New Testament. Uh, and oftentimes we will see that the temple in the Old Testament is being used as a type of heaven uh, as we read about it in the New Testament. And so if you take that concept uh, and you use the words, the verbs that David's using here in verse 1, uh, you, we may, at least in our application of this, think about the fact that we go to God and we say, God, who can abide temporarily? Use that word in a temporary sense. Who may abide temporarily on this earth in your presence as a part of your church with your approval? And then the second question, Lord, who may abide? How can we abide? How can we dwell permanently, not temporarily, permanently with you in heaven? Now, the answer to David's two-part question is, is one answer. There's only one. There, in, in, David's, in David's application here, there's only one way for David to dwell with approval in the eyes of God, whether it be temporary or permanently uh, in the eyes of God. And I think we need to see that same application today. In order for us to dwell uh, with Christ in his church uh, on a temporary basis, if you might think about it that way, in his church, the same requirements, the same conditions 
are set out for us to dwell with him permanently in heaven. Uh, it's, it's not one or the other. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23 uh, says that we've come to the church and when uh, those who are a part of his church have been registered, or your Bible might use the word enrolled, registered or enrolled in heaven. Uh, and so the very conditions that we have to be in his church are the very conditions that we have uh, laid out for us to uh, dwell with him permanently in heaven. Uh, and so perhaps there's some application that we can make of that there. But for sure... This psalm has ready-made application for us as far as how do we answer that question. How can, we how can we abide with God here with his approval? How can we dwell with God permanently in heaven uh, forever? And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at verse 2, the first couple lines in verse 2. And, and what I see here is just kind of an overall answer. Uh, and you, you can take these verses and you can divide them, uh, these things, as, as however you want. I've seen those who, who took, there, there's 11 different requirements that are listed here from verse 2 down through verse 5. And I've seen some who've just taken the 11 and just looked at them as 11 different requirements. Uh, I saw some who looked at them and they took the positive requirements and the negative requirements and so they put them in, into two different categories in that way. Uh, but I, I want to divide them into, in, into a different structure and, and just look at kind of an overall answer uh, in these first two statements in verse 2 and then look at what I see as maybe some more specific uh, requirements of us uh, when we get down into the verses that follow. So who can, who can abide? Who can dwell? Who, who has God's approval? Number one in verse 2 is David says, He who walks uprightly. As you know from your study of the Bible, the Bible often uses the word walks uh, just to talk about our service uh, with the Lord, to talk about our daily activity uh, with our God. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, you know, we don't know a whole lot about Enoch. Uh, there's very few verses in the Bible given to Enoch. But what do we know about Enoch? He walked with God. Uh, you know, if, if there's nothing else that's known about us, could we be known as somebody who walked with God? You get, you, we, know about, we know a lot more about Noah. You know, he's, he's the guy who built the ark. But it also said about Noah in Genesis chapter 6, he walked with God. Uh, well, what does, that, what does that word walk mean? It means that I am daily uh, in activity and in service with the Lord. Uh, and so that's my responsibility. In Colossians chapter one and verse uh, in verse ten, we're to, we're to walk with walk, to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And so that same concept, uh, that same word is used of us, and uh, we understand that Jeremiah chapter ten, verse twenty three says, "The way of man is not in himself; uh, it's not in man who walks to direct his steps." So if I'm going to walk, then I need to walk in the in the right direction. And in walking in the right direction, how does David describe this? He says it's got not just the person who walks. New King James has the word, this person walks uprightly. Uh, the American uh, Standard has the same word. Uh, the, uh, the ESV has to walk blamelessly. Uh, if you have the New American Standard, it says to walk with integrity. Uh, it's not talking about walking uh, without sin, but it's talking about a person uh, that is desirous of, of, their, of their whole life being devoted to the Lord. Not just Sunday. It's not just special weekends, but on a daily basis, my whole entire life to be walking faithfully with the Lord. So when you think about Enoch, he walked with God. We don't know a whole lot about the man, but he walked with God so much that um, that's where he ended his life uh, and did not die, but just walked off the scene with God. Well, could that be said of us? If I'm going to have God's approval, then on a daily basis, I've got to be walking with God. But then you get the second line in this verse. And again, 
There, there's likely some parallelism here that's designed to say this is saying the same thing, but the words are a little bit different. It's not just he who walks uprightly, but it's the person who works righteousness. So if I'm walking with God, I've got to be working with God. I, 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 can't, I can't just say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm kind of good friends with God. You know, we, 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 I walk with Him, I talk with Him, I hang out with Him. No, the, the concept of walking with God is not, is not just praying with Him and not just reading the Bible, those kind of things that we need to do, but we need to be those who are working with Him. And He gives us the scope uh, of this work, and that is those who work righteousness. Uh, and, and so it's not left up to me to decide uh, what what kind of work do I need to do for the Lord. Uh, it's not up to me to say, well, I, I'll do whatever is right uh, in the eyes of other people. Whatever's popular, whatever's right in the eyes of man, that's that's kind of my, my guideline, my standard. Well, obviously that's not going to work. Uh, nor what's right in my own eyes. You read the book of Judges and uh, what was happening in the days of the, of the Judges. Everyone was doing that which was right in his own eyes. Well, and you see, you see the end result of individuals doing what was right in their own eyes. And so David says, God... You know, we, we transported that ark in a way that wasn't proper order in your eyes. And now we're here in Jerusalem, if that's the background. Now we're here. We want to abide with you. We want to dwell with you and with your approval. How do we do that? And, and, God's, and, and the answer is, you've got to walk with me. You've got to walk uprightly. You've got to walk with integrity. You've got to work righteousness. You've got to work that which is right, not in man's eyes or your own eyes. You've got to work that which is right in God's eyes. You look in Acts chapter 10, and uh, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, you remember that occasion where he says, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Uh, but then he uses this, this big word. It's only got seven letters in it, but it's a universal term where he says, whoever, this, this applies to everybody, whoever fears God and works righteousness is accepted by him. You know, here's... Here's our religious world today. Do they not want to be accepted by God? You know, it, it, we, uh, uh, we want to be accepted by others. Our kids grow up and they, that's, that's what they long for is acceptance uh, from their peers. But the, the, the greatest thing we, that we could have is the acceptance of God. And, and so Peter tells us that's available to the person who fears God and the person who works what is right in the eyes of God. So as you think about these, as you think about what, what I'm kind of dividing out as the overall answer to this, the person who walks uprightly, the person who works righteousness, I want you to think about the fact that, that while that's an overall answer to this question, for me to walk uprightly and to work righteousness with God, that involves everything about me. That involves my thoughts. That involves my, my attitude. That involves my words. That involves the tone that I use with my words. That involves my actions. That involves the motivation and the intent of my actions. For me to walk uprightly and to work righteousness with God. The overall answer, that involves everything about me. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at these, at these next nine categories, uh, these next nine conditions, as it were, that David gives here of dwelling with God with his approval. And I want to divide them out into what I see as a, as a very specific answer because there, there are some very specific things here that, that might make you a little uneasy, that might, they might get a little personal. Uh, some of the things that are mentioned here are, are, very, uh, are very personal, uh, but you recognize that they involve the whole being from, from the 
inside from our heart all the way to the outward actions uh, that are part of our lives. And so what I want to do is I want to divide these nine these nine remaining uh, conditions and requirements, I want to divide them into five categories. Um, and since we're talking about dwelling with God and dwelling with His approval, I want to use those five letters, D-W-E-L-L, and, uh, and divide these last nine into these categories. Okay, how, what does God require of me in order to dwell acceptably in His presence? So the first thing I want us to see, and this is going to be in verse 2 and in verse 4, is that in order to dwell with God's approval, I've got to be devoted to truthfulness. Not, not, just, not just be somebody who likes truth, but somebody who is devoted to truthfulness. Look in verse 2, the end of verse 2. Uh, the, the, who can dwell with God? He who speaks the truth in his heart. I find it interesting that, uh, you know, we know we're supposed to speak truth with our lips. You know, that's a given. You know, that, that God requires us to speak the truth, uh, even speak the truth with our neighbor, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. And uh, sometime go and look in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation and uh, the last two chapters of the Bible, three times it talks about God condemning lying uh, with, our, with our tongues. And so uh, God obviously requires that we speak the truth with our mouth. But David's not focused on the mouth. I mean, he is, but David takes a step backwards. And David says, it's not just about telling the truth with your mouth. David says, God looks on the heart. And so, in a later psalm, in Psalm 51, in verse 6, uh, David says, God desires truth in the inward parts. You know, I, 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 God, I know I'm supposed to, I, I know I'm not supposed to tell a lie. I know I'm supposed to tell the truth. And, and God says, absolutely, with your mouth, with your tongue, you're to tell the truth. But God looks within the heart and says, hang on a second. It's not just about what's coming out of the mouth. It's about what's dwelling in your heart. And so even Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 12 would talk about, you know, here's, here's a good man. And he brings forth from the good treasures good things to say. But then there's the evil man who's got the evil treasures of his heart. And he brings forth evil things. So if I'm going to be one who's going to speak the truth, well, then my heart, my inward parts have got to be devoted to truth. And, and that, that concept, speaking truth uh, in your heart, is, is to me such, a, such an amazing idea that uh, my thoughts need to be centered on truth. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, you know, where Paul uh, is coming to the close of this book, and he says, here's some things I want you to meditate on, meditate on these things. He says at the end of the verse, the very first thing he has is, whatsoever things are true. On this list of qualities of things that my heart and my mind need to meditate on it, whatever things are true. What does that say, what does that say about falsehoods? What does that say about, uh, about lies? I, I need to remove those, not just from my mouth. I need to remove those from my heart. I, I need to vacate those things uh, from my very mind so that my heart, not just my mouth, so that my heart is right with God. I know a lot of times we put an emphasis, and we need to, on our outward actions, on our outward words. But God, as you know, takes a step back and says, you need to keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. And so, in, in being devoted to truthfulness, the first thing David talks about is, I need to be somebody who speaks the truth in my heart. But then look down in verse 4. We're going to come back and, and fill in the rest of these, these things that are here as well. But down at the end of verse 4, he says, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. 
In order to dwell in the presence of God, God says, I've got to be a person that is one who keeps my word. You know, sometimes we'll use the expression, my word is my bond uh, kind of concept. And that's the thing here. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. We need to be known as a people who keep our promises. We need to be known as a people that, that, can, that are trustworthy, that whatever we say, a person can absolutely know that we're, that we're going to remain true to that. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, and James said it in James chapter 5, that our yes needs to be yes. If I tell somebody that I'm going to do something, then I've got to, I've got to do that. And you know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, once I've made a promise, have you ever made a promise and then you got into it? Oh wow, I didn't I didn't realize this was going to cost me this much money. I mean, I I was willing to help them. I didn't realize it was going to I didn't realize it was going to take me this much time. Wow, I mean, I told them I would do this, but I just thought, uh, well, I, I didn't realize it, this was going to be so inconvenient for me in trying to do this. But I'm I'm really kind of in a disadvantage here now that I'm I'm trying to fulfill this promise. And so what do we do sometimes? We try to wiggle our way out of a promise that we make. Now, well, I'm not talking about keep, not keeping a, you know, if there's some kind of sin involved, obviously we don't keep a promise when, when, that, when, when that's involved. But God says, I need to swear to my own hurt. And the, if there is hurt that is involved in keeping a promise, God says that hurt is not to be directed to the other person. I don't need to be telling the other person, well, okay, fine. I made the promise, fine, I made the promise. I'll go ahead and do this, but boy, I really don't have the time to do this. Well, where's the hurt directed in that? The hurt's directed towards them. I'm doing you a favor now because this is really hurting me to do. No, no, no. God says he swears to his own hurt. Okay. Yep, this is going to inconvenience me more than I thought, perhaps. But I go ahead and do it. And the reality is, when I'm keeping my promises, I am choosing who is my father. You know, Jesus talked about the devil being the father of lies in John chapter 8. Well, is he my father? Or is God my father who cannot lie? Titus 1 and verse 2. It's impossible for him to lie. Hebrews 6 and verse 18. Who, who, who am I devoted to? Am I devoted to keeping my word as my father does? Think, think about what if Jesus came to this earth and Jesus got down here and Jesus said, wow, I didn't realize this was going to take so... I mean, I, I, I said I was going to do this, but boy, this is, this is really inconvenient. You know, I, I'm really at a disadvantage here in, in keeping the promise that God made. You know, I just... Guys, I, 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 I meant to do this, but I, I just don't know that it's in me. Did Jesus swear to his own hurt, if we want to use this terminology? To the very end, he kept his word. Uh, and God says, if you're going to dwell in my presence, you've got to be devoted to truthfulness. Number two, on the letter W, we've got to wrangle or wrestle our tongues into submission. I know that sounds kind of vivid, right? Uh, we've already talked about doing that with, with the truthfulness, but really that's focused on the heart, making sure your heart is devoted to truthfulness. But we've got to wrestle our tongues into submission. So go back up, look in verse 3. Two things in verse 3, uh, two virtues in verse 3 that we've got to have when we wrestle our tongues into submission. First of all, he says he does not, New King James says he does not backbite with his tongue. This is where things might start to get kind of touchy uh, and uh, might, in some congregations, uh, might find some individuals that this really impacts. 
You might have, instead of the word backbite, you might have the word slander. Who does not slander uh, with his tongue. The, the Hebrew word, I find the Hebrew word that's used here very interesting. It's actually a word that was used and translated in other places, meaning to spy out. Uh, when Joshua spent, sent the spies in, into Ai, in Joshua chapter 7, it's the same word. Uh, they, he sent them to spy out. Uh, and so the idea of backbiting, the idea of slandering uh, from, from a Hebrew concept is, is talking about going about exploring and spying out and finding little juicy pieces of gossip that I can use in somebody's life. I'm spying them out. Uh, and, and so the idea here is not just what the tongue does, but it's about what I do in the background of, uh, of what's happening where, you know, I kind of I want to know more about what's happening in this person's life. And so I'm not afraid to go kind of digging in to find these things out and what's going on with them. But as you know, Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter what covenant you look at. Uh, being a tailbearer, I love that term that's used uh, throughout the book of Proverbs, being a tailbearer, condemned by God. Uh, you go to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. You go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 15, and uh, God talked about there are those who are wandering from house to house, saying things, speaking things which they ought not. Do I ever, do I ever say things about other people that I ought not? Uh, am, I a, am I a, as Peter would call them, a busybody in other people's matters? You know, uh, we, honestly, we've got enough going on. I think most of us in our own lives, what, you know, how do we have time to be busybody in other people's matters? We've got our own matters uh, that, that we've got to be focused on. And so God's, think about this. David says, God, I want to abide in your presence. I want to dwell with you. How can I do that? Well, you've got to wrestle your tongue into submission. What's that involve? Stop backbiting and slandering and spying out stuff about other people. So he says, okay, well, I don't really do that. God says, okay, well, let me just double check you on that. Number two, he says in verse three, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Hebrew term that's used here for take up means, as you would think, to bear or to carry something, to carry something along. And so, you know, we might find uh, comfort. We might find some kind of relief to say, well, you know, I wasn't the one that initiated that rumor. I wasn't the one that went spying out and digging up all of this stuff. I didn't start that slanderous saying about, so, you know, I didn't do that. God says, okay, maybe you didn't do the first part, but did you take it up when it came to you? When somebody brought it to you, did you say, oh, wow, look, y'all, oh, it's, boy, really? You heard that? Oh, they did that? Hmm, well, let me take this and carry it along with me for a little while. And, oh, I find somebody else. Hey, did you happen to hear what somebody did or said? And so I take something and I carry this information along. And God says, that is not for me. To carry. It's not for me to spy it out. It's not for me to slander. It's not for me to carry along and to bear this slanderous information about somebody else. And so our response, if somebody comes to us, somebody comes to us with some, you know, and, and I, I know it happens. It happens, it happens to me a lot. Uh, you know, somebody comes and says, I, I, did, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear what they did? Did you hear what they said? Our immediate reaction ought to be, hang on, no, no, no. I, I, I don't want to be involved in this. Don't want to hear what, I, I don't know what you're going to say, but I don't want to hear. Uh, I, and, and please, please don't, please stop what you're saying and just walk away. And, and I don't know if I've got this verse up, but yeah, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 
uh, four is talking about it in that in that context of of evil and wickedness. Uh, Proverbs chapter four verse fifteen says to avoid it, do not travel on it, turn away from it, and pass on. That's pretty good. That's pretty good advice when it comes to slander. Avoid it, get away from it, and pass on. Don't have anything to do with what with what is going on there, uh, because when I do, I'm just stirring it up. Even if I don't mean to, even if I just listen. You ever had somebody say, uh, you know, I, I, I heard this from somebody, just don't, don't tell anybody else this. Don't tell anybody else this. That's a recipe for disaster. Because guess what happens a few days, few weeks, few months later? You don't remember the don't tell anybody else this. You just remember the juicy piece of information you got. You just you forgot, oh, I can't tell anybody this. No, no, no. I, I don't need to have anything to do with that. Otherwise, I am Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12. I'm just stirring up the strife. I want to be approved in the eyes of God. I've got to be devoted to truthfulness. Number two, I've got to wrestle my tongue into submission. Number three, I've got to be somebody who exercises the golden rule. Um, and you might not think the golden rule is in this text, uh, and at least not in the way that we know it, but right here in the center, the very center of the psalm, the very center of verse 3, the very center of all of these, these qualities that we've got to have, it's stated in a negative form, but we understand it in the positive form of the, uh, of the, of the golden rule. We're in the middle of verse 3, it says, Nor does evil to his neighbor. That's kind of broad. That's not just about my words. That's about everything that's involved uh, in how I treat others. I've got to practice the golden rule. and I, I don't have time to develop or, or to discuss these, so let me just put all of these up here. Just, just, some New Testament, just some New Testament words. We know in Luke chapter 6, verse 31, and Matthew 7, verse 12 is where we find the golden rule. Uh, but think about how that is explained in other passages. I've got to love them as I love myself. I've got to esteem them as better than myself. I've got to look out for their interest and not only my own. I've got to seek their well-being and not merely my own. I need to do them good and not do them harm. That's the golden rule. Uh, it's, it is looking out for what is best for others and doing it even if it is at my expense, even if it is to my hurt. Uh, my responsibility is to do unto others. Uh, and sometimes we, sometimes we put that too much, uh, not too much, but sometimes we put the, the emphasis on what I want out of it. But I think it's the emphasis not what I want. I think Jesus' emphasis is on the doing part of it. How often did Jesus tell us to do things? The, the whole, whole parable of the Good Samaritan was what you get to the end of it and Jesus says, who, who was it? Uh, who was it who's, who's justified in it? Well, it's, it's the man who showed him mercy. So he said, go and do likewise. Uh, and, and sometime look in Luke chapter 10, and when that man comes to Jesus, what must I do? He uses an, an heiress form. What, just tell me one thing I need to do. And Jesus uses a present tense at the end of Luke chapter 10. At the end of that parable, says, this is an ongoing activity that we've got to be involved in. And obviously the parable of the Good Samaritan is that this idea of the golden rule. I'm doing, I'm seeing, I'm recognizing the needs of others, and I am acting on their, on their part, recognizing that in order to be right with God, I've got to do what I can to be right with others and do right unto others. The first L in the word dwell is that if I want to dwell with God, I've got to be someone who loves righteousness and loathes lawlessness. This is a quality of God, is it not? If I'm going to emulate God, 
God loves righteousness and loathes lawlessness. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9 talks about Jesus uh, when he was on this earth and that Jesus loved righteousness and hated, uh, hated lawlessness. Uh, and so that needs to be me. And so look at verse 4. Here's where we get these two things in verse 4. Uh, if I'm going to love righteousness, then I've got to be someone who's in, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Let that sink in for, for a moment. I want to be approved in the eyes of God. Okay, what do I need to do? Well, you need to be somebody in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Sin is, sin is something that is celebrated today. Sin is something that is glamorized today. But a follower of God cannot glorify it cannot glamorize it cannot celebrate sin there's nothing entertaining about sin there's nothing funny about sin and so think about think about how strong of a term that is used here and whose eyes a vile person is despised that's that same word is used in the prophecies about Jesus that he that he would be despised and rejected Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3 that he would be despised by the people think about how the people treated Jesus in the last hours of his life how much they despised him how much they said no give us Barabbas and crucify that they despised him and God uses that same word to say our reaction towards sin, our reaction towards a vile person is not to show them approval, is not to, is not to gather them in and be all inclusive with them and say, oh, well, all that's okay. No. God says in, in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, you know that it's not just the person who practices lawlessness, not just the word person who practices unrighteousness that is worthy of death, but even the person that approves of them. We're living in a society today where some folks work for companies where they are being pressured to be an ally. And that word is being used to be an ally of these various groups out here, these LGBTQ groups. Uh, and you, they're being pressured to be an ally, of the, which, which means what? That I sign this document and say, I will support you. I will have your back. I've got, wait a minute. I, I can't show approval to those who are in sin. In fact, he says, I just, it's not that I just cannot show approval. I've got to be a person who despises what they are doing. Not, it, it's not being neutral. It's not even just saying, well, I don't think that's right. It is one who looks at that. And the New Testament word is in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. And I don't remember if somebody used this word, this verse yesterday. Maybe it was Dave Miller. But that, that word abhor, abhor evil. Not, not just, well, you know, I just I don't really think they ought to be doing that. I, I despise it and I abhor it. The second thing here in verse 4 is, but he who honors those who fear the Lord. Think about the contrast here. So here, here are those who are vile persons. Here are those who fear the Lord. Vile persons and those who fear the Lord. Think about how what we are required to do, how it's reversed today. Who is it that's honored today? The vile person. Who is it who's despised today? The person who fears the Lord. The exact opposite of, what, of what's required of us is what we're seeing today. And so God says, I need to despise the vile person and the person who fears the Lord. I need to honor them. Same, same Hebrew word for honoring father and mother. I need to honor them. God loves the righteous. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 9. I need to love the righteous. I need to esteem them, hold them up, and, and help them to, you know, the, the terminology in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 is, you know, we need to stir one another up unto love and good works. 
I need to look out for what's best for my brethren and to do good even unto them, not just unto uh, the whole world. And so think about this. God says, or David's asking, Lord, how can I abide temporarily? How can I dwell permanently with you? He says, okay, you've got to be devoted to truthfulness. You've got to wrestle your tongue into submission. You've got to exercise the golden rule. You've got to love righteousness and loathe lawlessness. And let me very quickly mention these two things in verse 5, and our time is running out. But I've got to love money, or love people, more than I love money. That's backwards today too, isn't it? Uh, you know, the, the thing today is for people to love money. Uh, and, uh, but look at what he says in verse 5. How can I dwell with God? The one who can is he who does not put his money at usury. Uh, he, who does, he, he who does not put his money at interest. And I, I'm, gonna try to, I'm just going to put all of these things up here because I'm going to have to run through this quickly for sake of time. But the Jews were forbidden for charging interest. Uh, to fellow Jews. They could charge interest to, to foreigners, but even then to the strangers, they still were not to take advantage of them. And so the point here in this is don't take advantage of others. You see somebody that's in need, help the person out in need, but don't, don't seek to take advantage of them. Show them mercy uh, as that good Samaritan did in Luke chapter 10. And then the second thing he says in verse 5 is, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Boy, money's powerful. Money can cause us to do things, say things uh, that we absolutely should not. But we need to understand that as a child of God, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for sale. Uh, and so, if somebody wants me to do something uh, for 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 some kind of money or some kind of financial gain, some kind of material gain, I need to be a person who loves people more than I love money. Amazing that this was written 3,000 years ago. Any application left in something that's 3,000 years old, every single line still applies to us today. If I want to dwell with God, the same requirements of David 3,000 years ago are the same requirements of me today. And so very briefly, just look at the last part of verse 5 and look at the blessing. And as you read through these things in, in Psalm 15, let me encourage you to, and, and whether it's here or in the New Testament, instead of looking at things as a list of do's and don'ts, and cans and can'ts, and oh, I'm just not allowed to do that because I'm a Christian, we ought to look at what is listed here with a heartfelt desire just to please the Lord. Not I have to do it, this is what I want to do. This is what I get to do. And so that's what the word does here. He who does these things, he who devotes himself, not just I have to do I devote myself to doing these things, this person shall never be moved. It's as if this psalm is bookended with the blessings of God. If I do what God wants me to do, I'll abide with Him here, I'll dwell with Him forever, and I will never be moved. I think maybe there's a dual meaning here in this last expression. What does it mean to never be moved? Is it talking about me? Is it talking about the fact that I am so fixed on being always abounding on the work of the Lord that I am determined, Lord, I will never be moved from serving you? I think that's part of it. But I don't think that's all of it. I think the other part of this, if it has a dual meaning, is, Lord, I am so fixed on serving you, I won't be moved from it. But I think even more, it's about God's part. 
You remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 uh, when he's talking about the, what we call the Christian graces there in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control. And he goes through all of those and you get down to the end of the list. And he says, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Well, how am I never going to stumble? Jude verse 24, the Lord. The Lord will keep us from stumbling. And so our determination not to stumble is made sure by God's power to keep us from stumbling. Amazing little psalm. Just five verses. But five verses that have so much application for us today. To still tell us how we can approve, how we can be approved and dwell with God in His presence. We close with a prayer. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we are grateful to be called your children. So grateful for the great privilege that we have to call upon you as our Father. Father, we pray that you would be with us as your children. That we would look into your word and find those things that you would have us to do in order that we might abide with you, abide with you here on this earth, in your church, in your family, in your body here with your approval. Father, help us to do what you've called us to do in order that we might dwell with you forever in heaven. Thank you for this lectureship. Thank you for this rich study of the Psalms that are found within your word. Help help us to write them upon our hearts so that our hearts might be guarded by your word, that we might devote our lives to serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.